0: Hello there, and welcome to the Dear Dyslexic podcast series, brought to you by Rethink Dyslexia, the podcast where we're breaking barriers and doing things differently. I'm Shay Wissell, your host, and I'm so glad you can join us. I'm a fellow neurodivergent, and I'm coming from the lands of the Ruwandru people of the Kulin Nation, where I live and work, and I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to all the tribes across our beautiful country and to all First Nations people listening today. Our podcast was born in 2017 out of a need to give a voice to the stories and perspectives of adults with dyslexia. And our voice has grown stronger year after year. We're now a globally listened to podcast with guests from all around the world. Join us for insightful conversations about living with dyslexia and other neurodivergences across all walks of life. Our special focus is on adult education, employment, social and emotional well-being, and entrepreneurship. We're excited to be bringing you this episode and invite you to like and follow us, or even better, why not leave us a review on your favourite podcast platform? So let's get started. Thank you for coming on the show today, Craig. I'm so excited to be talking to you as a fellow uh, researcher. Well, I'm not qualified yet, but you definitely are.
1: Well, uh, thank you very much. But I think if you're producing papers, as far as I'm concerned, you're a researcher. You just need to get the little certificate yet, so I won't worry about that.
0: Well, this conversation today forms part of a new kind of podcast series that I'm doing around research now that I have nearly completed my doctorate and we've had so many people that are dyslexic doing research. A lot of them aren't actually doing research in dyslexia, but I thought I wanted to start having conversations around um, being dyslexic and doing research and the importance of having the evidence base um, to support what we're doing and to help drive the conversation forward in a more positive light and I came across your work when I was reviewing papers for my research and I was really intrigued by your topic so I'm excited to be able to talk to you about that um, today but would you like to introduce yourself and where you're working currently?
1: Yes certainly of course um, my name is work at Edgehill University in the UK. I work at a graduate school, so my job is looking after postgraduate students. So I do a lot of one-to-one work with um, students writing their thesis, um, some of whom are dyslexic, some of whom are not, or may have other challenges. And I give them support and help. I also give lectures on the sort of core training program of uh, postgraduate researchers. Um I do my own research and I also um, currently I'm I'm sort of running the reasonable adjustment program so if a student comes in with any form of disability um, I'm made aware of it and then I have a conversation with the PGR um, and their supervisors and we come to an agreement about what reasonable adjustments need to be made Um, and then that goes to a panel and is generally agreed so that's another part of my role and also Um, chair um, what's called the vivabotchi examinations, which from our previous conversation, it it sounds like Australia doesn't necessarily have that system, but they're the oral exams at the end of a PhD or master's by research. So I have various kind of jobs I do at the university, Um, but like I said, I'm based in graduate school. Um, My own research is, is around a concept called lexism, and is like racism, sexism, etc. except it's that which is applicable to dyslexics. So it's the othering and discrimination of dyslexics. Um, now that has some similarities with what's referred to as the social model of dyslexia, uh, which was first put forward by Barbara Riddick, which, um, was an ad- adaptation of the social model of disability, but applied to dyslexics and it's a very good model um it's it's very strong um and certainly there would be some argument by some people to say we shouldn't mess with it and lexism is similar to that in in some regards so there are three key features to the social model of dyslexia the first is um that um dis, dyslexics face uh discrimination prejudice and so on and so forth I don't really need to explain that to this audience because I'm sure they're more than well aware of that. The other factor is the importance of social and cultural norms. So how a language is constructed. So English, for example, is very irregular. It's a difficult language because it is so irregular. It doesn't follow any easy patterns. Whereas Spanish is much more regular, much more consistent, and so is easier to to learn to read, which is why in Spanish-speaking countries, generally speaking, literacy rates tend to be higher. Or if they start at a low base, say in South America, they're easier to push up, whereas English-speaking countries are a bit more resistant because it's such an awkward, messed-up language. Um, So those are two key features, both of which I agree with. So lexism would have those features in it. The third um, feature is dyslexia as an impairment so in Riddick's model dyslexia is an impairment now she's not completely clear whether she means some sort of neurological impairment some sort of disorder she's not clear on what she means really by impairment but impairment is used a lot in 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 disability studies to distinguish between a medical issue and a cultural issue so the cultural is that which disables somebody but the impairment is so for example if somebody has is an amputee for example then they have an impairment in terms of walking right well that's fine and fair enough for things which are physical or sensory but for something like dyslexia which is built on the assumption of literacy then that becomes slightly problematic because if the other bit of the model is social cultural norms well social cultural norms and literacy don't stay the same so my concern and this is going to sound counterintuitive to a lot of your audience and I should remind people at this point I am dyslexic myself I'm not I'm not you know a lot pushing out a view out of ignorance is that we need to separate the idea of dyslexic and dyslexia because dyslexia as a theory, exists to explain dyslexics. And it exists in the psychological realm and sometimes the neuroscientific realm. That doesn't necessarily mean it's the only theory or the only option we've got. The other option is to think about the existence of dyslexics as being socially constructed. In other words, we exist because there's this distorted and frankly wrong view that somehow intelligence and literacy are linked. They're not linked. Um, You can have somebody who's not very bright but very literate and vice versa so that they really aren't linked at all. And there's plenty of psychologists who recognize that. And sometimes what happens is when psychologists start questioning the existence of dyslexia, journalists take it up and mangle the hell out of it. And you get a very unsophisticated view of what they're saying. And actually, they aren't denying the existence of dyslexics per se. What they're doing is questioning the existence of dyslexia, because as a concept, it doesn't really work very well. So what I'm saying when we say we should shift to looking at this as terms of, dyslexics are defined by lexism. They are other than discriminated by lexism. So you have a bunch of social norms and expectations Academics sometimes call normative practices or normative assumptions, which other and discriminate people. So, how a word is spelt, the fact that you should know and remember how that word is spelt, and so on and so forth. All of those things are actually much more fluid than people realise. So, I'll, I'll give you an example. This is this is what a friend of mine calls a Craig special because it's suitably obscure, weird, and historical. I started out life as a historian. St. Ambrose of Milan, so we're going back to the 5th century here, well late 4th actually, early 5th, was deemed unusual and we've got a couple of historical sources. One of them is Confessions of uh, St. Augustine, the other one is the the life of St. Ambrose. Where St. Ambrose is seen to be very strange, weird and have some mysterious power, because he can read silently in his head. Well, reading silently in your head now is not a biggie. You know, everybody does that. You know, it's not considered odd. But at that time, it was considered highly unusual because when people read, they read out loud. Well, that's an example of a normative practice and a normative assumption associated with literacy. And you can see what exists now and what existed then is very different. Another example would be um, the spelling of English in the the 17th century. Um, People tended to spell as they spoke. So it was very normal to have a whole range of different spellings for words. Um, But now we have a much more restricted um, thing. So as a kid, I grew up in the South of England and I couldn't spell the word castle. And I kept putting an R in it because the way, if you're brought up in the south of England, you pronounce castle, castle. So I ended up spelling it like that. My wife, who's a good northerner, will say castle. And she's quite right to call it castle. <laughs> because then you don't misspell it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so th- even dialect pronunciation differences. Um, I Up the road from me, well... From an Australian point of view it's round you know it's just up the street. but for, for, from an English point of view it, it's a fair few miles away is the lake district. And in the lake district, there's a village, well there's three villages um, and they're all called Plough, but they're all pronounced differently. So you can go up there and the, the road this is going to confuse the hell out of any anybody who's not local. They all point to Clough in different directions, but there are three different villages called Clough, and they're all pronounced very, very differently. Um, and I can't, pronu- I, I can't remember what the different pronunciations are. Um, so those are examples of practices and assumptions where nice, neat little norms don't really work out. So when you get to psychological testing, and you've got to bear in mind. Psychologists are obsessed with data, obsessed with numbers. They're not very good at interpreting that. I mean, I had a I knew a psychologist, he's a very good psychologist somewhere. A guy called Victor von Dahl, who used to work at the same institution as me. Very eminent psychologist. And he always struck me as very intelligent, very sensible, because he would quite often say, I can only tell you what, I can't tell you why. And I really wish other psychologists were as sensible as him because they do tend to build very fancy interpretations on a bunch of numbers without thinking about wider issues. Um, One of the ways I try and question a lot of these assumptions uh, is through um, what's called thought experiments. Thought experiments are kind of hypothetical what-ifs, and they go back a long time. They go back to Plato. But other ones you you might be more familiar with, if you've got any physicists in, in, in your audience, Einstein's um, special theory of relativity, if, if, if I remember rightly, he had this idea about a train travelling at the speed of light. Well, obviously no train is going to travel at the speed of light. His point was to push our, con- <clears throat> push our conceptual understandings forward by really trying to understand, yes, but w- w- what's actually going on here? to question a bunch of assumptions um, and the problem with having lots of numbers unless you really do some really solid conceptual work about yes but what does that actually mean you could get to the, the wrong assumption very very quickly um, so some of my uh, some uh, some of my thought experiments um, test and question the concept of dyslexia some of them sort of try and lay out how we might understand lexism because it's a new concept. It's a concept that I I created because there wasn't a working concept that I could use. So I had to create one Um, to try and really get us to question things. Um, Now with the exception of Victor who did read my, one of my articles and did understand them. I'm not sure that any other psychologists have read them or understood them. So Uh, You know, they're not really, you know, if you raise my name as a psychologist, they wouldn't have heard of me. But most of my stuff appears in, um, well, I've got a few articles in the British Journal of Special Education. I've got a couple in Disability and Society. Um, So these are much more disability scholars, critical disability studies kind of area, Um, which seems to be much more open to this but this would i think underline my personal view is that um we should be shifting the discussion to sociology it shouldn't really exist in the realm of psychology because psychology doesn't help us if anything i think it's part of the problem i don't think it's part of the solution
0: um are you saying that dyslexia doesn't exist in the form that we know it as
1: Um, Yeah basically um which is a hard which is why i said we need to separate the two um and why i stress that i'm dyslexic myself um i mean this is a a comparative case right it's not the same i'm not saying it's the same it's a comparative case think how race and gender were, were constructed 100 years ago that doesn't mean that there weren't women and there weren't black people. It just means they were constructed very, very differently. They were medicalised. Um, well, I think dyslexia has been medicalized and psychologicalised, however you should put it. And I don't think dyslexia as a concept helps us much. For a concept to be of any use, it's got to help us. I don't think it helps us. I think it gets in a way we, we end up sometimes self-oppressing. Dyslexics exist. Our difficulties exist, but put it this way, this is this is an example of a, a thought experiment. Say you've got three guys, right? One's dyslexic, w- sorry, one's severely dyslexic, one's mildly dyslexic, and one isn't, right? And they get in a time machine, and bear in mind it is a thought experiment, so you can have whatever you like in a thought experiment. They get in a time machine, they go back to the 17th century. Um, well, the guy who's mildly dyslexic isn't really hasn't got any issues anymore because he's meeting social norms of literacy. You know, there's no difficulty. You know, he ceased to be, in effect, dyslexic. The guy who's severely dyslexic still got literacy issues, um, but they're not as bad. The guy who's not, not dyslexic is not affected either way. They then get in the time machine and go to a far future where the norms of literacy have gone up, expectations of literacy have gone up attitudes to literacy has hardened and become even more awkward than they are now right when they get out of the time machine the guy who wasn't dyslexic is now dyslexic do you see what i mean when i say well where's the dyslexia the answer is it was never there the dyslexic was there and the dyslexic is defined by the societal context that they're in but i'm not really sure that dyslexia is helping us much there um, and if you go back to Barbara Reddick's idea of the social model of dyslexia, her argument, part of her argument was that um, dyslexia is a phonological deficit. Well, yeah, um, okay, maybe. But in a given time and culture, somebody's other than discriminated by that, by how that, that impacts them. But the obvious question is: is, okay, you've got, somebody with a phonological deficit, if you go to a time and a place where they're not othered and discriminated at because of that that deficit, do they cease to be dyslexic? Um, Or if you take them, or if you take somebody who isn't dyslexic and put them in a place where they are othered by the dyslexic norms and difficulties for literacy, well, where was the dyslexia? This is the really problematic stuff. This is where People have really got to think about it. They've really got to problematize it. And it's very uncomfortable because we grow up. uh, I was certainly in my experience, I was fighting for the ignore, you know, my mother especially was fighting for the acknowledgement of the dyslexia diagnosis. She had to fight very, very hard and it was given very grudgingly. Um, But that fight was because. Otherwise, I was facing repeatedly being called stupid or lazy or whatever, and I wasn't. So emotionally, we've all got rather attached to the dyslexia label. Actually, really, yes, we're dyslexics, but do we really need that as the basis of our identity? I don't think so. I think We experience othering, we experience discrimination because we don't meet certain societal norms. But those societal norms change over time. All right, now they might appear concrete, but literacy doesn't stay the same. Um, We're already seeing it change um, in terms of, you know, voice, text-to-voice and voice-to-text software. That's rapidly moving on. Literacy is changing. Education will have to change with it. So the actual demarcations of who is or is not dyslexic isn't that easy. I mean, psychologists will often admit that there's a big gray area in terms of who gets defined as dyslexic and who, who who's a, in quotes, borderline case. Well, we're only a borderline case because of the social norms and expectations of literacy. And it is very difficult, I've noticed this any time I present my work, it's very difficult for people to separate the concept of dyslexic from dyslexia. But until we do, I don't think we're going to make much progress, because we're going to be reliant on psychology to give us the answers, and it can't give us the answers. It's the wrong intellectual domain. You know, a sociologist is more used to you than a psychologist, to be honest.
0: At Rethink Dyslexia, we are doing things differently. As a global leader in creating inclusive environments for adults with dyslexia, our commitment is to provide individuals with opportunities to live healthier, happier, and more connected lives. Through our range of tailored services, including coaching, learning and development programs, consultancy, and training, we're helping dyslexic individuals, businesses, and organisations to better understand and support their dyslexic employees. So if you're looking for insights, inspiration and expert advice on dyslexia and how you can provide inclusive practices and environments, then head to RethinkDyslexia.com to find out more or book your free consultation today. Oh, Oh, so many things running through my head right now.
1: Okay, well, (laughs) throw them out and kick them around.
0: (laughs) Because... My fourth paper from writing is about labels and looking at the social and the medical model and then actually looking at now the concept of intersectionality and kind of the power and privilege struggle yeah. and these different labels that we get placed on us and then how that impacts our ability to prosper in society. But going back to your point around, and I love the concept of if you take us back to 1700s, you know, this person wasn't dyslexic anymore. And if you took us back to, you know, Aboriginal times in Australia when they drew in pictures, you know, no one was dyslexic.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: The science at the moment tells us that we are, our brains are born differently. So you can't take that out of us as such, even with all the social constructs.
1: Yeah. But reading no. doesn't occur in the brain.
0: Reading doesn't occur in the brain?
1: No. Th- this is... Sorry, this is, this is a kind of very Wittgensteinian, you know, Ludwig Wittgenstein philosophy-esque thing. So you get, you got to bear in mind, reading is something that happens in the world. So you're judged to read by the societal expectations. Neurons may be firing in your brain. Your brain's doing something. It's not like you can't read without it. But whether it's classed as reading, whether it's classed as meeting the expectations of reading or not, is dependent on the world. It's not dependent on what's going on in the brain of somebody. Does that make sense?
0: So when you say we're dyslexic without the dyslexia, or before how you're using, we're still dyslexic,
1: but
0: is that what you're saying? Because we are born, our brains are born differently to read. And then somebody's putting constructs in place that make it harder. Yeah,
1: I I don't I I'm a little bit suspicious of quite often of, of the, the neuroscientific evidence, partly because they've already decided who's dyslexic before they stick their brain in the scanner. Mm.
0: It's not so, randomized. It's not a blind control. We're just No, it's 100 it's, people
1: it's, go in and Yeah, it, I, so I'm am I'm a bit I'm a bit suspicious of of that stuff. And also it it's a little bit a little bit cut and dried. I mean, oh this isn't just like this is to do with autism, but I have, a, I have a friend of mine who's very, very high functioning autistic. Um, he's interesting because though he's high, very high functioning autistic, he doesn't believe in autism either. So you can see how we get on. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, and he went, he had to have a scan for some reason. And the doctor said, Yeah, you've got a very typical brain. And of course, he's the most untypical person you could imagine. You wouldn't. You'd never get him on one of these things. He 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 refuses to have his photograph taken ever. (laughs) You know he's he's you know yeah he's 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 an eccentric totally. Him being said, his brain's very typical. Trust me, he's not a typical person. So there's a massive gap between his brain (laughs) and him in the world, right? Um, So the problem with we're thinking, I mean, it also comes down to something else. Sorry, I apologize for shoving in technical words, but um, I'm sure, as, as somebody who's read the social model and things, you, you're familiar with the concept of normativity and that which is normative, right? Okay, good. Um, well, the opposite of normative is nomological, and nomological is to do with natural laws. So gravity is nomological. Um, Two chemicals interacting is nomological. Neurons firing in the brain are nomological. Right? You cannot marry the nomological with the normative. It just doesn't work. You can't do it. There are two different levels of explanation and... The normative literacy by its nature, its inherent nature, is normative. You cannot give nomological criteria for a normative function. It makes absolutely no sense. And the times in our past when people have tried to marry the two have resulted in eugenics, feeble mindedness, social Darwinism, phrenology. Do I need to go on? All right? They didn't end well yeah um i think this is something similar we've got a bunch of experts in speech marks saying oh wow it's all nomological." give us lots of funding um is it so if if i misspell a word i mean i've misspelled it in the world i've misspelled it in a normative criteria how are you going to match that up to my brain i mean bearing in mind that quite often you've got a vast array of of what counts as being dyslexic. You haven't got any agreement about whether we're talking about 10% of the population, 15% of the population, 1% of the population. Well, if you've put a bunch of people's brains in, in scanners, which out are we talking 4%, 15%, 10%? Who have you selected? So I'm, really suspicious of neuroscience when it starts to make these kind of claims so um especially when they start confusing normative and logical criteria you can't do that and if you do do that it does not end well you know phrenologists thought they were scientists and you know they can measure things nobody takes that seriously now i do wonder in you know 50 years 100 times when anybody's going to take this kind of stuff seriously I'm sorry for that came in a bit. <laughs> well, you
0: no, know, I'm sitting here thinking, well,
1: thinking um, it's, um, it's something I feel strongly about.
0: Well, and I mean, I feel very strongly about the term superpower. And if you get me on on a rant about that term and dyslexia here all night. But it's um, um straight well, controversy.
1: Point. Yeah, it, it is because if you think about it, think about black athletes. Well, there are more black athletes, especially American black athletes, because that's a route out of poverty where they can compete on an equal level. Right. Well, the disproportionate number, I don't know what the numbers are like in, in, in Australia, but there's a very heavily disproportionate number of dyslexics on art courses, on hairdressing courses, on you know things which are more practicable. practical. Um, well, that's because we have an opportunity to do things there because there's less literacy. This whole thing about being more creative, well, human beings are creative. And if you place human beings in in situations where certain things are restricted, they have to be creative to survive. They have to adapt to survive. That's nothing to do with being dyslexic. That's to do with being a human being. So, yeah, I don't agree with this superpower Tom West type stuff. I think it's a nonsense. I think we, and our our brains are plastic, they will change and develop and and, and evolve to fit situations. So, I don't like this kind of deterministic, we are born such and such a way. We're not born such and such a way.
0: Yeah, and I, that is where I come from, is that. You know, it's the environment we're placed in and we have to problem-solve our way out of it that makes us, you know, resilient and persistent. And
1: and we can get good at problem-solving because we do it an awful lot of the time. Um, And then it it appears to be some kind of superpower. Well, yes, that's because for the rest of the population, they might not have to do that as much. So they don't don't practice it as much. I remember... um, A colleague was giving me a lift to work. Um, I was with two colleagues, and um, you know we're stuck out in rural Lancashire. The mists coming down, and um, the bumper of the car started to come off. Um, So we pulled up, and we didn't have anything. We had, you know, didn't really have any tools or anything on us. Um, So I took my lanyard off, and. I went to tie it to the to the the bumper to the car. It wasn't quite long enough, so I took out my handkerchief, tied that to the end of the lanyard, and and tied it up uh, and secured it. My colleagues thought this was amazing. Oh, you just did that so quickly, you know. And it was sort of like, well, yeah. And you you can spell far better than I can. You can remember telephone numbers, and I can't. Um, this is what I'm good at. You know, I can I can problem solve quickly. Because I'm used to having to do that, they're not used to having to do it. So it it isn't. It's 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 why education exists. We we educate kids in a particular way so they get used to doing tasks easily. If you educated them in a different way, they'd be good at different tasks. So I, I don't really understand this whole superpower thing. I do find it quite funny. It's a bit X Men to me, but you know <laughs> anyway. <laughs>
0: I find it a bit uh, ostracising and marginalising for people, that, for dyslexic people who struggle every day. And I've written a blog on it, but I haven't put it out yet through social media because I'm a fence sitter. <laughs> <laughs> Especially on um, social media. Yeah, I,
1: mean, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things for which I I, I find ways around things. So normally if I'm given a form, I give it to my wife because she's very lexic. She's very... She, you know, she's not dyslexia in shape or form. It's a form right. Like the missus will do that. Um, and she's quite happy. She wouldn't let me do a form. She does not want me to do forms. Um, um, but there are gonna be other things um which I can problem probably you know, problem solve my way out way out of. It's just knowing your strength and when to go and ask people. And um, one of the things is is you you know who your friends are pretty quickly, because a friend will help you. Another one will get dismissive and superior. Well, they're not worth bothering with, really. Um, So, yeah. So so going back to your question, I can't remember what question you had before I jumped in.
0: Well, I think we've covered a lot of it, and I feel like we need another uh, episode so we could talk about um, supporting dyslexic students that are doing PhDs and the work. Yes,
1: I mean, I could certainly uh, talk quite a long time about that because that's quite often my day job um so yeah we could have a separate conversation about that um I think in your list of questions you had things about like when I was diagnosed and things like that do you want to cover some of those
0: was there anything more I wonder if um because we've had quite a, a long chat whether it might be quite a lot of information for people to digest
1: Oh yeah, sure. <laughs>
0: uh, and the concept is quite controversial. I mean, the most controversy we have is phonics and whole language <laughs> in Australia. That is that is the yeah. big debate in Australia, and that's why. Yeah, I, 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 I suspect, suspect
1: it's, it's similar. Uh, it's synthetic phonics in in the UK. I mean, I'll, I'll, my work is out there, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's getting discussed a lot. Um, it's interesting because um, I think there's been a, a I think people don't know how to deal with it because of this thing of me saying you need to separate dyslexics from dyslexia i think that that confuses people and i think also they then therefore think that i'm i'm siding with julian elliott and keith Stanovich, and it's sort of like well no because our right to self-reference belongs to us it doesn't belong to psychologists um and um Therefore, my position isn't the same as them because you were mentioning labelling. Well, labelling, a label is something that somebody else puts on you. You don't have a choice. Whereas self-reference is something you adopt for yourself. And that is something, if we're going to empower ourselves, if we're going to move away, we need to move away from psychologists. We need to move towards sociologists because a sociologist isn't going to tell you whether you can self-reference or not, they take that as given. I, mean, I noticed one of your questions was, do you think dyslexics should be involved in, in in dyslexia research? Well, yes. But I think the question arises because psychologists have this concept that they refer to as bias. Well, it's a misunderstanding of bias, partly. Um, um, whereas the sociologists talk about positioning. So everybody has a positioning. Everybody has a set of preconceptions and you know they were brought up in a particular time and place. Um which in fact impacts on how they think about things. So the sociologists, and I'm not a sociologist, so I'm not I'm not you know um saying that you know there's issues sometimes with sociology, but it's a hell of a lot better than psychology. Um that so positioning is a much healthier way of thinking about things, whereas this idea of bias and not being biased, well, the assumption that you cannot have biases, well, either you're naive, you're spectacularly arrogant, or you're just dumb if you think that people don't have biases. I mean, coming from history, um, I started out life studying history, and um, it's always assumed that a historian or, or a particular source or form of evidence has a bias you know they have what sociologists would call positioning but this idea that psychology can be done in a way which is completely unbiased the numbers will speak for themselves no that that's that's just not gonna ride i'm sorry um you know even even if you were to say um well look at it this way there's a bias in being um, middle-class, male, white, and um, highly educated uh, psychologist, and that is going to influence how you view people who are not the same as you. You are biased. To claim that you're not biased is disingenuous. Um, so I've got no time or patience with this claim by psychologists that somehow what they can do is unbiased. You are biased, I'm sorry. Um, um, And you're brought up in an education system that favors particular forms of literacy and particular norms and expectations of literacy. You are inherently biased. Um, So I don't have a lot of time and patience with that. I think the sociological model of people have positioning and everybody has positioning and we should acknowledge it and accept it. because without acknowledging it you can't judge somebody's work that i think is much healthier which is part of what i'm saying is we're better off shifting towards sociology so i think that that deals with the question of whether dyslexic should be involved in dyslexic research is a big fat yes because it should be a dialogue it shouldn't just be on us it should be a dialogue between equals, it should not be us tugging our forelock and being good little dyslexics and being defined the way the psychologists feel that they want to define us this week and then next week they change their minds again.
0: We could have a whole podcast on um, diagnosing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I um, I think we've covered a lot of your work tonight, which is really pleasing for me because... To have the opportunity to talk to fellow dyslexic researchers um, is fantastic because we get to unpack the different ideas that we have constructed for ourselves rather than experts in the field as such constructing them for us. So your theory of um, lexium, did I say that correctly then?
1: That was lexism. But Lexism, just, sorry, it, I was in yeah, a podcast like racism, last night. But, uh, well, yeah, but it's a new word. How the hell were you going to know how to pronounce <laughs> I it? Ask, I
0: was talking to you last night that was I am Lex and now we've got Lexism. So there's a lot of Lex yeah. going on in the last 24 hours. Yeah, well,
1: it, it comes from, um, I adopted it from the Latin, which is Lex meaning both word and law. Uh, and um, um, And in the ancient world it was believed to be fully human you had to have written laws; otherwise, you're barbarous and savage and not really human. Um, well, the obsession with language and literacy as being a demarcation of rationality and humanness dates back to antiquity, but it also rears its head in um, imperialism, colonialism in, in in you know the eighteenth and nineteenth century. So it's not like there you could talk of ethnolexism you could talk of the convergence of racism and lexism um but lexism specifically in terms of dyslexics is one thing but that other thing you know that kind of uh the other phrase sometimes uses graphocentricism which is this obsession with the written word an unhealthy obsession with the written word um so those are useful concepts going forward if you want to unpick a lot of the assumptions, especially in psychology. You know, I'll consider the battle one when dyslexics are publicly burning copies of the DSM. I'll say, right, my job's done now. The rest of you, just get on with it. I'm retiring, you know. Oh, my God. I mean, I won't be alive when that happens, but, you know, it, it, I, I look forward to it. Oh,
0: <laughs> I, I could stay chatting to you for ages, but I, um, do you feel that we have become too? as a final thought, Um, too obsessed with the written
1: word Um, yeah and also uh, we're moving away from it if you think about it if you think about how we're recording information the the shifts in technology I mean historically speaking literacy has only really become kind of expected and normal for everybody really from the 1870s because that's a you know 1860s 1870s it was becoming more and more expected because that's when you had um, certainly in the UK that's when you had the, the school acts where everybody had to go to school before that there's much more variation and also um, people would be read to so only a percent, populate, certain percentage of the population were literate but those who were literate it wasn't always necessarily on class that's that's a bit of a misunderstanding um would publicly read to other people so it wasn't that people weren't uneducated well you think about voice to text and text to voice software in a society that's moved away from copperplate writing on on, you know handwritten stuff things are going to shift so we are going to move away the written word the written word will still be important recording information and recording knowledge will always remain important and always has been important but the assumptions about how you access it, I think, will change. Um, and it will change for the better. It will be a technologist who will resolve our issues. It won't be a psychologist. Um, and it's the sociologist who will enable us to kind of push things on quicker um, as a final thought.
0: Well, I think that's a way to wrap up. It's a very interesting conversation that we've had this uh, this, my evening, your morning, and
1: yeah, it's a bit surreal because you're you're in the evening, I'm in the morning,
0: (laughs) really my bedtime. (laughs) I have done some podcasts at two in the morning. That that's been a bit tough with America people in America, but um, I think that it's your papers are fascinating and a really different way of looking at dyslexia in the modern world. And I'm really grateful that we've been ha- able to have this conversation and I'm sure that the people listening tonight will feel it as mind-blowing as I have. <laughs> It'll be interesting to get oh. some feedback. on uh, yes. on.
1: Well, thank you for inviting conversation.
0: me. Pleasure. Yeah, it's, um, it's a great conversation starter and I hope that in um, our PhD group and for those that listen to our research podcasts that – they join this conversation and we get more dyslexics doing more research that disrupts the norm and challenges and critically thinks about things. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. If you haven't done so already, make sure you sign up to our mailing list so you can keep up to date with everything we're doing at Rethink Dyslexia. So head to rethinkdyslexia.com.au and don't forget, if there's anything you heard today that was distressing, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36. Thanks for listening and bye for now.